invite you to turn to Judges chapter 17. Judges chapter 17. With the death of Samson, we have finished the main section of the, the narrative of the book of Judges. And the remainder of the book, chapters 17 through 21, really serve as an epilogue or an appendix to the main part of the story. And this epilogue describes how wicked the people of Israel are and how wicked they, they have become. So don't think chronologically following Samson. In fact, this probably happened during the, the beginning stages of the period of the Judges. This period of Judges happened for about, took place over about 350 years. This would have been within the first couple decades, uh, the, the events that we're going to see described in chapters 17 through 21. It serves as an epilogue to see how debased these people are in, in, uh, in Israel. And the real point of it is that they, they had no king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And there are effectively two stories that we're going to study and we're going to study them over five weeks. But the first story is in chapters 17 and 18. And they are regarding... Uh, it's a story about an unauthorized priest. It's an illustration of the corruption that there is in worship. And then the second story in chapters 19 through 21 is all about a debased people. It illustrates corruption in morals. So corruption in, in worship and corruption in morals. That's what we're going to see in these last five chapters. Now, the reason I know that this is an epilogue and that scholars believe this is that um, this is a separate section that does not talk about foreign oppression. There's no mention of a foreign nation that's causing them problems. There's no mention of the crying for help. Remember the whole cycle that we would see throughout the, the period of the Judges? It was there was oppression. They would fall into sin. There would be oppression. They would cry for help. And then God would give them deliverance. And over a period of time, they would fall back into sin and so on. Then the cycle continues. The point of, uh, of this epilogue, this appendix, is to show the depravity in the age of the judges. They were without a king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So let's begin to see this first story, the story of uh, that illustrates the corruption in worship. Chapter 17, I'll begin reading in verse 1. This is the Word of God. Now there was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. He said to his mother, The eleven hundred pieces of silver which were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse in my hearing, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. He then returned the eleven hundred pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I wholly dedicate the silver from my hand to the Lord for my son to make a graven image and a molten image. Now therefore, I will return them to you. So when he returned the silver to his mother, his mother took two hundred pieces of silver and gave them to the silversmith who made them into a graven image and a molten image. And they were in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod, and the household idols, and consecrated one of his sons that he might become his priest. In, the, in those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Now there was a young man from Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he was staying there. Then the man departed from the city, from Bethlehem in Judah, to stay wherever he might find a place. And as he made his journey, he came to the hill country of Ephraim to the house of Micah. Micah said to him, 
where do you come from? And he said to him, I am a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, and I am going to stay wherever I may find a place. Micah then said to him, Dwell with me, and be a father and a priest to me, and I will give you ten pieces of silver a year, a suit of clothes, and your, and your maintenance. And so the Levite went in. The Levite agreed to live with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. So Micah consecrated the Levite, and the young man became his priest and lived in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me, seeing that I have a Levite as a priest. The point of these last five chapters is that without proper leadership, everyone does what is right in their own eyes. And there are three primary sins that we're going to see in this first chapter here, chapter 17. And the first is a sin of syncretism. Sin of syncretism. And it's in verses 1 through 5. Religious syncretism is the mixing of two or more religions. It's a confusion or more accurately, a perversion of God-honoring worship. And we're going to see an example of this. We just read about it in the house of Micah. It's a perversion. It's a, it's a desire to worship the true God along with false gods or in, wrong, in a wrong form. The story begins with Micah reconciling with his mother. We have a, uh, his identity, where he's from or where he lives. He's in Ephraim, so he is an Ephraimite. Ephraim was in the central part of Israel. Its land was located west of the Jordan River. So think of the Jordan River right down the middle of Israel. And then to the west of there, you had Ephraim. There's a small section there towards the central part of Israel. Its southern border uh, is about 12 miles north of Jerusalem. And this is where Micah lived. So we find out a little about man. And then in verse 2, we find out about his sin. Apparently, he had stolen 1,100 pieces of silver, probably shekels of silver. Remember, this is the same amount that Delilah was offered by the five lords of the Philistines, the five rulers of the Philistines. They said, if you can get Samson to give up his secret, we will each give you 1,100 shekels of silver. And this is how much Micah had stolen. This is a significant amount of money. 1,100 shekels of silver, as I mentioned last week, weighs about 150 pounds and is worth approximately in our day about $40,000. He had stolen this from his mother. And and we'll see uh, here later in the chapter that Micah hires this priest for 10 shekels for a whole year. So the fact that he had stolen 1,100 shekels suggests that he had stolen a significant amount of money in a land that was not known for great wealth. In a time period, I should say, that's not known for great wealth. Apparently, when she discovered it was missing, she pronounced a curse on the thief. Notice verse 2. The 1,100 shekels of uh, uh, shekels or pieces of silver which were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse in my hearing. So he steals the money from her. Maybe it happened over a long period of time. She discovers that it's missing, and she... Uh, utters a curse against the person who stole. Obviously, she didn't know it was her own son. And uh, he was he had heard about this curse and perhaps out of guilt or maybe it was genuine sorrow, he was compelled to return the money to his mother. And when he does, notice what she does at the end of verse 2. His mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. So what did she say when the money was stolen from her? Cursed be the person who stole this money 
Now he returns it, and she says what? Blessed be my son right, uh, by the Lord. So she effectively reverses the curse that was on him, which she didn't know was him specifically, but now she pronounces a blessing upon him, and she goes one step further. Look at verse 3. He then returned the 1,100 pieces or shekels of silver to his mother, and his mother said, I wholly dedicate the silver from my hand to the Lord. Now, notice she doesn't dedicate it to Baal or Ashtaroth, but she dedicates it to the Lord. So we have a man here in the first three verses who repents of his sin. We have a mother who is quick to forgive and who is willing to dedicate all of that money to the Lord. So far, so good. If the story were to end here, we would commend them for their faith, but we have the rest of the story and it's pretty shocking what happens. For what purpose does she actually designate the money? She says, I'm going to wholly dedicate it to the Lord, but look at the second part of verse 3. For my son to make a graven image and a molten image, now therefore I will return them to you. That is, these shekels of silver. Micah's mother commissions the crafting of some household idols. Okay, so a graven image and a molten image. So what is a graven image? What's the difference between a graven and a molten image? Well, a graven image, there's a song uh, that's pretty recent. It's called Before the Throne of God Above. And it goes like this. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. So what does it mean in the song when it says that my name is graven on His hands. Well, it means that, that our names are effectively carved on His hands. That through His wounds, we have life. And, and it, it speaks to our perfect plea before God and the reason that we can stand before God and say, God, the only reason we can be accepted is because of our perfect plea, the wounds of Jesus Christ. So to, to, gra- to, to have a graven image is to have a written or a carved image. Carved image. A molten image, as you can imagine, is is just a false god that was um, made by liquefying metal, poured it into a mold, and then when it cooled down, it would be uh, it would be polished and and perhaps uh, adorned with certain other kinds of metals. But the point is, is that it's a some sort of a metallic image, a metallic idol. So, in order for this to happen, you don't just make these on your own. This would take great skill in order to make something, make these two objects. And so she enlists the help of a silversmith and she pays 200 shekels in order to do it. Now, this is pretty interesting that, remember in verse 3, I wholly dedicate the silver. What do you think she means when she says, I wholly dedicate? Doesn't that sound like the whole thing, right? All 1,100 shekels I'm giving to the Lord. And then in verse 4, he returns the money to her, but his mother took 200 pieces of silver. So she wholly dedicates it to the Lord, right? But then she actually only uses 200 uh, and keeps the rest for herself. She doesn't follow through on what she has said. And she uses the money for, not really for the Lord, it's really for despicable, uh, as despicable of purposes as we could possibly think. 
Well, in verse 5, Micah performs unauthorized worship. We may have an indication, well, maybe Micah is a godly person. He's repented of his sins. And he may be, but, but here in verse 5, we see that he, he performs unauthorized worship. And he does this by setting up a shrine in his own home and hiring a priest. And I would say an unauthorized priest. So in verse 5, the man Micah had a shrine and made an ephod and household idols and consecrated one of his sons that he might become priest. So the amount of money spent to make these household images was 200 shekels of silver, which is approximately $7,500 in our day. It suggests that these were not small pocket idols that you, you know, put on your keychain or something, or that you even put on your mantle. These may very well have been six-foot images that he set up a little room in his house so that he could worship God in his, his way. So with these shiny new idols... Micah puts together his own own personal shrine. What is a shrine? Look in the margin of your Bible under verse 5 and see if your margin tells you what a shrine is. What is it? A house of God or house of gods. Right? It's actually in the plural, so it could be God or gods. And, and so this is just his own personal house of God. And we would say, obviously, small g, God. There for... For Israel, there was only supposed to be one house of God, right? And it was not supposed to contain any idols. That was the whole second command. Command number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Command number two, you shall not make any graven images. Don't make any idols. Don't carve any images because God cannot be contained in one item. He's much larger than that. It's like giving God one name. He's got so many names because it's hard to describe who God really is. So in addition to these idols that were crafted, he also had an ephod made in verse 5. An ephod, if you remember from Leviticus, was a garment that the priest would wear. It's a really beautifully ornate piece of clothing. It was made of primarily blue fabric, and it had a breastplate on it with 12 stones, four rows of three stones, and each stone represented one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And then it had a flap where those stones were connected and the flap would come down, and inside of there were held the Urim and the Thummim. And those were to basically find out God's desire, like, like with the casting of lots. And this is a legitimate thing, so don't think this is a pagan thing. Okay? In order to find out what God wanted in the situation, they would often consult the Urim and the Thummim. And, uh, and uh, so, so Micah here has one crafted for his own home. And then... Uh, we're going to see at the end of verse 5 that he even hires a priest or enlists a, ple- a priest for his services. Micah here is participating in religious syncretism. The attempting of mis- mixing the worship of the true and living God with the worship of false gods. You remember Aaron at Sinai. Remember in chapters 32 through 34 of Exodus, he was trying to lead the people to worship the true God. And so he had the people bring all their gold and he fashioned a calf that was supposed to be a representation of the true God. He wasn't trying to serve a false God there. The reason I know that he was trying to worship the true God is because this is what he said to them. When the calf was actually crafted, he said, Here is your God, the one who brought you out of Egypt. 
Exodus 32.4. So, in Aaron's mind, this is a proper way for us to worship the true God. He's actually worshiping, seeking to worship the true God in the wrong form. And that's what Micah's doing here. God prescribed that they not worship Him in this way. Not set up your own personal shrine, but they worship at His one and only house that He had set up for them. The tabernacle resided north of Jerusalem. Well, he also commissions a priest at the end of verse 5, and he consecrated one of his sons that he might become his priest. Okay, now think with me. Which tribe were priests supposed to come from? The tribe of Levi, right? And what tribe was Micah's, what, what tribe was Micah's son from, according to verse 1? Micah was from Ephraim, so his son would have been from Ephraim. And so that's why I say it's unauthorized worship. He's setting up his own shrine, shrine and he's basically employing a priest uh, apart from God's desire. So in the first five verses, we have an example from the time of the judges of a family who was religiously aberrant. And now, in verses 7 through 13, we see a priest who has committed the sin of materialism. Okay, so first, the sin of syncretism. Secondly, the sin of materialism. Verses 7 to 13, the story is still about Micah, but the apostasy of the priest is what is most alarming. We have in verses 7 and 8, we're introduced to a new character, someone who is a young priest. He's from Bethlehem of Judah. And he's looking for a place to live. Now, don't think maybe he's just looking for a fresh start, better wage. The priest's responsibility, this is the Levite, a priest's responsibility was to, was to perform the services of God. He had a responsibility to speak to God on behalf of the people, to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. And yet this young man was looking for something else. He was looking for his own personal opportunity to be a priest, apparently. He's from the tribe of Judah. Remember, Levi did not have its own allotted territory. right? We have the twelve tribes of Israel, but actually Joseph, Joseph's sons got two, two, uh, two of the twelve allotments. The Levites were supposed to live among them. Uh, most of them are going to be living around Shiloh where the house of God was, but but the rest of them would live throughout 48 cities. And so he's leaving that city and going to Ephraim, looking for some place to stay, according to verse 8. So he probably leaves one of the priestly towns because maybe it was because this is an indication of how bad Israel was at the time. There wasn't proper worship going on in Israel, and so his services really weren't needed. Maybe that was the case. And so he heads out to become a freelance priest. And uh, he ends up at the house of Micah. Verse 9, he comes to Micah's house. Micah said to him, where do you come from? And he said, I'm a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, and I'm going to stay wherever I may find a place. Ephraim was about 30 miles north of Bethlehem. The Levites, remember, were not allotted land. Their primary work would be to work in the temple, and yet this priest is leaving in order to gain apparently some more profitable living. Materialism was the motivation, seems to be. And um, so he's going to a place where someone could appreciate his services. And amazingly, verse 10, he gets a job offer. 
Micah said, dwell with me and be a father and a priest to me. So, remember who Micah's priest was before this. It was his son. And now he's saying, I'm displacing my son as the priest. I've actually got a better situation now. Now I have an actual Levite who's my own personal priest. Now, in one sense, that's good. He's a Levite. But in another sense, you're not supposed to have your own personal priest. So both Micah and the priest should have known that this was unauthorized. And it appears that both of them are doing it for the purpose of of gaining greater financial well-being. Micah, thinking if I have a priest, then... God's going to prosper me. That's what he says in verse 13. Look at verse 13. Then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me. Why? Because I have a Levite as a priest. No longer do I have my son, but I have a Levite. So God's going to to help me in some way. It's as if Micah sees the priest as some kind of lucky rabbit's foot. Now he's got him in his home. So, the sin of syncretism, verses 1-5. to the sin of materialism, verses 7 to 13. And then I skipped over verse 6. Let's go back to that one. Number 3, the sin of relativism. Relativism. And this really is a sign of the times for the period of the judges. Relativism is the idea that, that um, you know, whatever seems good to you is okay. And this is very prevalent even in our day. right? The, the, the idea of tolerance at the sacrifice of truth in many cases, well, you know, that's your opinion, so I'll let you live that way. I'll live this way. No, there's, no, uh, there's no absolute authority in the minds of our society, right? That's what moral relativism is. You believe your way. I'll believe my way. We'll go our separate way. We just won't step on each other's toes. And we can never say anything's right or wrong. Well, this is what's happening In this day, look at verse 6. In those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. So I said that there are two stories in the appendix of Judges. This is the first story. It begins in verse 6 with this statement. And then at the end, in chapter 18, uh, towards the end of the the passage, uh, actually chapter 18, verse 1, continues the story. In those days there was no king in Israel. And then the second story is about the uh, the uh, the moral decline of the age uh, of this age and it begins in chapter 19 in those days there was no king in Israel and then also it concludes in chapter 21 the very last verse of the book in those days there was no king in Israel every did everyone did what was right in his own eyes so these kind of are bookends in many ways to both of these stories it's trying to show that that people without a leader are going to do whatever they think is right. The idea of moral relativism. In this last section of the book, there is scarcely any mention of God. And so really we see the terrible state of Israel, the terrible condition during this period of time. But the author is not just bringing up problems to bring up problems. He's actually prescribing a solution, isn't he? There's an implied solution in the statement in verse 6. Really, the problem is every man's doing what's right in his own eyes. The solution is they need a king. There is no king. That's the problem. So, keep in mind that this would have been written during the time of King David. King David brought great unity to the people of Israel. Unprecedented, really. 
And so the author is inviting the readers to think back carefully to the sad period, those, that 350-year time period during the time of the judges. And this is very helpful. Um, it, it points out the failure of the times. But, it, but the author goes one step further. He doesn't just point out failures. I, I know of a boss who used to get angry when his staff would come in and start, start talking about all the problems in the company. He would say, I don't want to hear about problems. I want to hear solutions. And up until this point, if we've read through the book of Judges, we've seen a lot of the problems. And here we read some more about the problems. But the author, I think, implicitly gives a solution. He's saying, everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes, but it's because they have no king. They need a proper leader. And without proper leadership, everyone does what is right in their own eyes. And the reason that this utter depravity needs to be pointed out to Israel and also preserved for us to see it as well is that when God's people... This is a quotation from Gary Phillips in his commentary. When God's people choose to ignore God's commands and refuse to worship in God's way, they are in danger of God's wrath. When God's people choose to ignore God's command and refuse to worship in God's way, they are in danger of God's wrath. The best thing that the author can do for Israel and for us is to point us back to trusting in God and worshiping His way. Obeying Him. Otherwise, we are in danger of God's wrath. Let me leave you with four points of application. Number one, the sin of apostasy is a dangerous possibility. The sin of apostasy is a dangerous possibility. Apostasy, which is basically this period of judges, is the defection from the worship of the true God of a professing believer. Have you ever known someone who has made a profession of faith in Christ who eventually turned away from God, showing that their profession was not genuine. Have you ever known someone like that? That's apostasy. Apostasy during the time of the judges was very severe. We see it at the home of an Israelite. Does anyone have any idea where the tabernacle was located at this time in history? I mentioned it briefly earlier. Shiloh, right? The house of God. The city. The name of the city is the house of God. Where was Joshua commanded to, to set it up? And look at look over to chapter eighteen, verse thirty one, because we'll see this. And I want you to just assume that, that it's here. Chapter eighteen, verse thirty one. So this is the continuation of the story about Micah. So they set up for themselves Micah's graven image, which he had ma- made all the time that the house of God was at Shiloh. The house of God's at Shiloh. Now turn to the back in the map in your back in the back of your Bible. Hey, okay, look for the the one during the it probably says something like the twelve tribes of Israel. And see if you can find Shiloh on there. Remember it's in the central part, okay, closer to the Dead Sea, but to the west of the Jordan River. It's in the in the region of Ephraim. Shiloh. You see where that's at? Okay. Now see if you can Spot Jerusalem, a lot easier to find. A little bit farther south. Look how look how close those two are. Okay, here's here's uh, here's Shiloh, right in the region 
of Ephraim. Okay, so uh, Jerusalem and Bethlehem, right there, that's where the priests would have come from. But in Ephraim, the whole time that Micah's commissioning his own priest, you know, buying off another priest, freelance priest, where is Shiloh? It's in Ephraim. The whole time it's in his, his backyard. You see this apostasy in the home of a person who lives right next door, effectively, to Shiloh, to the house of God. We see the apostasy in the priesthood, that this priest would be willing to leave his hometown and go off and become someone's personal priest. So You see how bad the priesthood has become for something like that to happen. And next week, we're going to see apostasy in a whole tribe, the tribe of the Danites. Chapter 18. The sin of apostasy is a dangerous possibility. And we need to watch out for those who are headed on that path. Uh, Paul warns us in Acts chapter 20 that there will be some who rise up even in your own midst who will turn away from the faith. They will be like ravenous wolves seeking to destroy some among you. Guard yourselves against them. Watch out for the sin of apostasy. Number two. The remedy to apostasy is seeking God. So if you're concerned about committing apostasy yourself, then seek God. If we as a church are concerned about people within our church committing apostasy, then we need to seek God. We need godly people seeking God's desires. We need godly leaders who can help people move closer to God, who can rescue some from the flames, as Jude says. Because without proper leadership, everyone does what is right in their own eyes. The remedy to apostasy is seeking God. Number three, guard against the fad of using the Bible as a lucky charm. Guard against the fad of using the Bible as a lucky charm. When we were in Brazil with Mike Jewell, we went to a restaurant in Cordichiba, and we were amazed to find an open Bible on the counter. Amazing. In a public place. He told us that many of the... Of the um, businesses, places of business, had an open Bible on their counter because they believed that it give, gives them some kind of good luck. Now, it makes sense. Much of South America is, is Catholic, and so you can understand why that's the case. But it's like the Catholics who, who have the patron, saint, the patron saint for just about everything. So what's the difference between using the Bible properly and using the Bible as a lucky charm or to use it as a means of superstition. Like, if I keep this near me, if I don't injure this in any way, then the Bible, God's going to do something for me. I think the difference between using the Bible properly and using it superstitiously is when we use it properly, we hear it and obey it. We hear it and obey it. We don't just sit it out there on the counter and the one page that it's always open to collects dust because we're not looking at any of the other pages. We're not even reading the pages that's there. We're just hoping that it does something for us like a magic genie bottle. Micah had fashioned God's Word to do what he wanted it to say rather than what it actually said. And in the process, he has both literally and figuratively fashioned his own God. Small g. He's fashioned his own God. 
He doesn't want to listen to what the Word of God says. He doesn't want to heed what the Word of God says. He wants to use the Word of God as a means to accomplish what he wants. It reminds me of the Philistines when they came to possess the Ark of the Covenant. Remember what they did with it? They put it alongside all their other gods. They used it as a lucky charm. They were hoping that it would provide great prosperity like it did for Israel. And what happened? Their favorite god falls on his face. And they finally have some plagues come upon them. They finally get rid of this thing. It's not bringing us any luck at all. It reminds me of Balak, king of Moab, who begged Balaam to prophesy something good for him. Right? He didn't want to hear what God had to say. He didn't want to hear the truth. He says, Balaam, say something good for us. Tell your God to say something good for us. And Balaam said, I'm not going to do that. Micah here is paying the salary of his priest. And in verse 13, he's expecting God to prosper him. And somehow, he kind of rubs this magic genie that he has, this magic lamp that he has, out going to pop great prosperity. For him, it was setting up a shrine in his home, commissioning a priest. The purpose of having a relationship with God, the purpose of hearing from a God who speaks is not to get what we want out of it. It's to know Him and to love Him and to serve Him. The, di- the, the difference between using the Bible properly and use it, using it superstitiously is that those who use it properly seek to hear it and obey it. Seek to hear it and be changed by it. Not to manipulate God in order to get Him to do what we want, in order for Him to kind of force His hand so that He has to prosper us. Guard against the fad of using the Bible as a lucky charm. And then number four, beware of the Elijah complex. Beware of the Elijah complex. Now, where did I get that from the text? Well, let me give you a little bit of explanation or, or review of Elijah. Elijah, remember, had just finished his mountaintop, mountaintop experience, literally, with this face-off between the prophets of Baal. Short time passed, and Jezebel, this wicked murderer, killed several other, in fact, all other prophets, and she promised that she was going to kill Elijah. This is no small threat from a woman who had already fallen, fallen, followed through on her promises to kill these other prophets. And so he went and pouted in a cave. The angel of the Lord came to visit him and he said, What's the matter, Elijah? Elijah said, I've been jealous. Uh, jealous. I have been zealous for the Lord. But the rest of Israel has set up all these altars for false worship and they have rejected you. I'm the only one left. I'm ready to die. And the Lord said, get up and eat, Elijah. There are 7,000 people in Israel who have not bowed the knee to the false gods of Baal and Ashtaroth. Get up. There are lots more people that are still worshiping me. And as we read the events that took place at this time, which was toward the beginning of the period of the Judges, we might think, what? There's no, there's no good going on anywhere in this period of time. Keep in mind that God is always, always at work to accomplish His purposes. And He's doing that 
by raising up a people that will serve Him. And if we think about it, the entire region of Israel during this time, this 350-year period, were not fully corrupt. There were some who did not bow the knee to the false gods. Can you think of any characters from the time, this time period, the time of the Judges, but not ones that we've read about in Judges. So this is going to require a little bit of thought on your part. Can you think of any characters that's recorded outside of the book of Judges that did not bow the knee to the false gods? You're going to have to use, you're going to have to use some thought in order to think who else is, is, is living around this time. Uh, I think he would have been much later. He's probably... Uh, this would have been around 1200, I think, B.C., so he would have been much later. What about David's family? Remember, the first king after the period of Judges was whom? King Saul and then King David. Okay, but, but David obviously probably wasn't born during this time. He was only uh, a teenager when he became king. So, but what about his family? Remember where David was born? What city? Same city as Jesus, right? Bethlehem. He's born in Bethlehem, and so his parents have been living during a, at least a portion of the period of the judges. What about David's grandparents? Our, our great grandparents. Remember who those were? The very next book in the in the Bible, Ruth and Boaz. Remember? Boaz beget Obed and Obed Jesse and Jesse David. So his great-grandparents definitely would have been here in the time of the judges. And we have a whole book that's recording the love for God with these two people. So beware of the Elijah complex. You're not the last person standing. We're not the last church standing. All of the Christians have not compromised. God is doing great things in Christians' lives within our state and within our country and within this entire world. And just to make another plug for short-term missions trips, this is one of the great values of short-term missions trips. It opens our eyes to see beyond the little... Okay, don't take this badly, but the little bubble in which we live. Right? We have our own little world, our own little globe in which we live. And we tend to think that that's all there is. And so when we go to work and we see all these pagans and people who hate God, we turn on the news, we see all this corruption. We think that's all that there is. And then we go to some other part of the world and there are 7,000 people who have not bowed the knee to the false gods. There are people who are worshiping God with all that they have. They're working just as hard as we are in order to serve God. God has always been there. He's been there since the time of creation. And He's been working to raise up a people for His namesake. And when we get that vision, when we go beyond our little bubble in which we live, it helps us to pray bigger. It helps us to praise God in greater ways than we could before because now we see, yes, God, it's not that You have just gone before us to that land like like we have to go over in a plane, but... But no, God has always been there and He's been working since the beginning of time to raise up the people in that area. It helps us to see beyond our little world. So beware, beware of the Elijah complex. 
apart from proper leadership, everyone does what is right in their own eyes. I'm sad to say that these last four chapters that we're going to study are not much more uh, pleasant. There is some some difficult topics that we're going to have to explore, particularly in chapters 19 through 21. But what we can know is that God is at work during this time. And, and we're going to come to the book of Ruth here in, in several months from now uh, after we study, I think, Luke, we're going to go to Ruth. But, but we're going to come to this and we're going to see that God was working during that time. That God's raising up people all over the world at every time in history to, to make His name known. And so we can praise God for His grace and praise God that He made us a part of it. And that no temptation that we have has taken us except what is what? Common to man. Other Christians, you may feel like you're the only person, you know, I'm the only person in this church who has to deal with this temptation. Well, you're not the only person in the world that has to deal with that temptation. There, it, is, it is common to man. And God is faithful. He will, with each temptation, give you a way to escape so that you'll be able to stand up under it. Let's pray. Father, thank You for expanding our vision even tonight as we think about the historical context in which this difficult uh, time in history was recorded. We're thankful for raising up people like Ruth and Boaz and David's family. It's exciting to know that, that You do great things even through unlikely means. I mean, like Ruth, a Moabitess woman. Who would expect for someone like that to serve You? And yet You used her in great ways to, to bring about... Um, great blessing to the people of Israel, great blessing to us because King David was born through through her and and ultimately Christ was. Lord, we pray that You would help us to be faithful to You and not to be in despair because at times we do feel like we are the only ones. Help us to get a, a larger vision of what's going on in our state and in our country and in our world with how You are doing great things for Your glory. Lord, help us to be faithful to You no matter what, even when it feels like we are all alone. May help us to, to love You more and to heed Your Word, to hear it and obey it. Lord, we don't want to use Your Bible as a superstitious means to get what we want, as somewhat like a cosmic vending machine. We put in our, our plastic obedience and we expect to get out great blessing. Lord, help us to do it out of hearts that love You and will accept no matter what comes our way, even if it means being ostracized from our family, ridicule from the people that, that are closest to us, Lord, that, that we're willing to trust You no matter what. We pray for Your grace. In Jesus' name, Amen.